Every few months, I hop onto Twitter for an AMA, Ask Me Anything. I've done these for years, and the questions are usually really wide-ranging and fun, covering anything from the causes of ice ages, or why woolly mammoths went extinct, or even what my favorite books are, or how I got into science. About a year ago, though, something changed. Instead of questions about Earth's climate or my favorite fossils, people wanted to know if it was really too late to do anything about climate change. A lot of people wanted to know if the world was really going to end in 7 to 10 years. One person even asked, is there any point in having kids? And in the months since, I've seen this sense of hopelessness growing, especially among youth. When I first started talking publicly about climate change over a decade ago, it felt like very few people were paying attention. It was rarely mentioned in the news, and a lot of the focus in the climate conversation was on how we could get Americans to believe that human-caused climate change was real in the first place. And then the conversation seemed to pivot. Public belief in climate change increased, and so did the media coverage, but there was also this growing emphasis on apocalyptic futures. It's like the public anxiety about climate change and the clickbait nature of modern journalism started this runaway feedback loop, and a media that had largely ignored climate change was now confusing what was possible with what was probable. And that's a problem, because we've somehow left a lot of people with the impression that there's nothing we can do about climate change, and that's simply not true. It's been frustrating to watch this new dynamic unfold. We've spent so much of the last decades trying to convince the public that climate change is real, but now we have a completely different problem, convincing them that it's not too late to do something about it. I do think a lot of this has to do with the way the media talks about climate change, but it's also because we're starting to see the signs of a warming world in our own backyards. As I record this introduction, it's one of the last days of a genuinely terrible year for climate extremes. The wildfires in California, Australia, and Siberia were the stuff of nightmares. And the 2020 hurricane season had us running out of alphabet and naming storms after Greek letters for only the second time in history. These are the kinds of impacts that climate scientists have been warning people about for decades. But what I don't think any of us predicted is that instead of being motivated by these kinds of headlines, a lot of folks feel immobilized by despair. Even worse, some people, mostly white men, feel an almost evangelical need to convince others that it's too late. Climate writer and podcaster Mary Heglar calls them doomer dudes. And while anxiety or despair are perfectly natural responses to really awful news, I think doomerism actually represents a distorted understanding of the science. You've probably seen messaging like this. 1.5 degrees is okay, but 2 degrees means the total collapse of civilization and all life as we know it. If we don't hit net zero emissions in 10 years, it's game over for planet Earth. These kinds of narratives represent climate action as a binary. We win or we lose big time. There are only two options. The problem with this framework is not just that it's wrong. I think it's actively harmful because it gives us permission to give up if we fail to meet ambitious targets. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know increasingly which futures are more likely than others. Last July, one of the most important climate studies in years came out, which answered a lot of our most pressing questions about something called climate sensitivity, which is basically how sensitive the Earth is to greenhouse gas emissions and how much it's likely to warm as a result. That study found that the best case scenarios are no longer likely. 
but neither are some of the worst case scenarios. We've basically narrowed the range of possibilities, but what ultimately happens is still up to us. 1.5 degrees warming is looking less and less likely, but the world will look very different with two, three, or four degrees of warming. Climate scientists will tell you that there is no magic number, no point of no return beyond which action on climate is meaningless. So instead of binaries, I prefer to think in terms of harm reduction, to borrow a concept from public health. When it comes to climate action, a no-harm scenario just isn't possible, because harm has already happened. But the more we do now, the more harm we can prevent in the future. And that means that acting on climate change will always be worth it, no matter how bleak things may seem. We also know from climate communication research that fear by itself is not a great motivator. It can actually backfire and cause people to fall into despair. There's a line in Margaret Atwood's post-apocalyptic novel, Year of the Flood, that I come back to often. We must be a beacon of hope, because if you tell people there's nothing they can do, then they will do worse than nothing. So for this episode, we're tackling apocalyptic narratives as a first step in fighting doomerism and despair. We first walk through what the newest data actually tell us about our climate future. Then we'll talk about the role of hope in the global climate conversation. Our first guest is climate scientist Zeke Hausfather, director of climate and energy at the Breakthrough Institute, an environmental research center based in Oakland, California. Zeke also worked as a research scientist with Berkeley Earth and was a senior climate analyst at Project Drawdown and U.S. analyst for Carbon Brief, so he spent a lot of time thinking about future climate scenarios. So, Zeke, let's get straight to the point here. How much warming are we looking at by the end of the century? So... It's a tough question to answer because a lot of it still depends on us. But if we look at what countries have committed to and codified in short-term climate goals so far, and I'll get to why that's an important caveat so uh, later, um, we're probably on track for something like three degrees centigrade warming relative to pre-industrial, so about two degrees warmer than today by the end of the 21st century, so by 2100. Mm -hmm. But of course, the world doesn't end in 2100, even though a lot of our models do. So as long as our emissions remain above zero, the world will continue to warm after that uh, until our emissions get to zero. Right. We know we've warmed about one degree Celsius since pre-industrial times. And by our current best estimates, we're looking at another two degrees by the end of the century. Yeah. So we could end up worse than that. You know, we could have a world where, you know, the Trumps and the Bolsonaros and the various other uh, sort of populists of the world roll back climate policy and subsidize burning coal directly, uh, as Trump tried to do in his first term. You know, or we could have a much better world where all these targets that countries like China are starting to set around net zero by 2060 are actually met, and, and we really have a good chance of limiting warming to well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels. Um, and so, so we're sort of at an exciting moment right now because there's so many commitments being made by countries, um, but these targets are also still aspirations more than operations. Mm -hmm. And a lot of countries are not doing that great in, in meeting sort of their existing Paris Agreement targets. And so we're in a, a weird world right now where there's a lot of expressed ambition, but it, we're all sort of waiting to see how it gets translated into policy. I think that's a really important point. We're looking at two or three degrees Celsius of future warming, which we can say is likely based on what we know right now. But that's not the same thing as certain, right? And that eventual climate future will largely come down to what governments are deciding to do right now. Yeah, and, and three degrees is, is in some ways becoming a bit of a conservative case, right? Three degrees is mm. the most likely outcome if we don't really do anything beyond what we've already committed to for the rest of the century. 
Um, and that's a pretty low bar, especially because we've already seen commitments well beyond that uh, made this year, you know, by, by China, by South Korea, by Japan that are not mm -hmm. included in that number. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get below that. And, and to be honest, I'm hopeful we'll be able to get well below two degrees, um, though it is a, a big lift and requires mm -hmm. getting global emissions to zero, you know, around 2070 or so. The one important caveat I want to give when I'm talking about all these numbers, like three degrees by 2100 relative to pre-industrial, is that's a best estimate. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, holding sort of one set of uncertainties constant, which is our emissions. Um, but there's two other really big sets of uncertainties that we can talk about at, at length later if you guys want, uh, which are sort of climate sensitivity. So how much it warms as CO2 in the atmosphere increases mm -hmm. uh, and carbon cycle feedback. So how much of the CO2 we emit remains in the atmosphere and how much that changes over time. And because of those, you know, a world that we think is going to warm three degrees could really be anywhere between, you know, two degrees at the low end or even four and a half degrees at the high end if we sort of roll sixes on all the climate dice. Mm -hmm. And so we really have to be careful not to fixate too much on something like a three degree world, which would not be a good world by any means, particularly for natural systems. But, you know, if, if we go in expecting three degrees, we could well end up with four and a half degrees. And so these sort of low probability, high impact outcomes should really shape our choices around emissions in the future. So it sounds like you're saying that we should be planning for the worst case scenario of those potential futures, even though that scenario is increasingly less likely and there's really no downside to that. Yeah, I mean, obviously there, there are trade-offs at some point when it, when it mm -hmm. comes to the speed of our emission reductions. Like if we were to literally stop all emissions tomorrow, it would have huge negative impacts on much of humanity because we still rely on fossil fuels for a lot of things. Right. But, you know, broadly speaking, there are a lot of no regrets policies. And, and the lower we get our emissions, the faster we lower our emissions, the more we preclude these sort of really catastrophic possible outcomes. So, Zeke, you've highlighted a range of possible futures based on the decisions that we, as humans, make with our emissions. One of those futures that we hear a lot about is something called RCP 8.5. Can you give sort of a Cliff Notes version of what RCP 8.5 is for those people who might not be familiar with models or the IPCC? The RCPs were a set of future climate outcomes that were developed in the lead up to the last IPCC report, um, the IPCC fifth assessment report. Mm -hmm. And the IPCC for a long time, ever since 1990, has, as part of its process, coordinated the development of future emission scenarios. Because one of the big uncertainties in the climate system that is not in climate models, that climate models are not able to calculate, is, is what our future emissions will be. Because those depend on you know, economics, it depends on population, it depends on technology prices and all these other things. And so there's a whole community of energy system modelers mm. that in coordination with the IPCC has been creating emission scenarios since the 90s. And so the previous set of emission scenarios were called the SRES scenarios. And those were created, uh, I think, around the year 2000. And so in the lead up to the fifth IPCC assessment report, which came out in 2013, those were getting pretty old. You know, the world had mm -hmm. changed a fair bit since 2000. And so there was a desire to create a new set of scenarios. Mm -hmm. Now, the old SRAS scenarios were sort of a set of coupled uh, socioeconomic and emission scenarios. So they had, you know, population GDP, they had some discrete assumptions around things like technology, uh, and they laid out five different pathways the world could take in the absence of any new climate policy. So they're all sort of baseline worlds. Mm -hmm. And there was a desire to do something like that for the IPCC fifth assessment report. Uh, and the energy modeling community started on that. But it turned out that they were running so far behind 
uh, that they weren't able to finish that modeling effort in time to create the scenarios that the climate modelers needed to, to run their climate models. Because climate models run on these giant supercomputers. It takes you know years of processing time mm -hmm. uh, to do all the model runs needed for the IPCC. And so they really need the emission scenarios in advance, or the, the concentration scenarios, I should say, in advance to be able to run mm -hmm. them. And so there was this bit, a bit of a challenge where they wanted to create this new set of scenarios. There wasn't really time. And so they settled on this sort of stopgap called the representative concentration pathways, where they just created four sort of pathways of future radiative forcing and, and concentrations of, of CO2 in the atmosphere that you know were broadly distinct from each other that sort of represented four different end of century pathways, mm -hmm. uh, RCP 2.6, which was sort of a below two degree scenario, RCP 4.5, which is about a, a 2.8 degree scenario or so, RCP 6.0, which was a 3.2 C scenario, uh, and RCP 8.5, which is like a, a four and a half degree uh, warming scenario by 2100. Mm -hmm. And they based these on a set of integrated assessment models uh, that were run to, to generate emission scenarios. And these integrated assessment models, three of them, the ones used to generate RCP 2.6, 4.5, and 6.0, had some level of mitigation. You know, it's very weak mitigation in, in 6.0, but at least some level. Mm -hmm. And RCP 8.5 was the only one of the scenarios that was generated using an integrated assessment model that didn't have any climate mitigation. Hmm. And it resulted in a very, very high emissions future. You know, it was a world where we were using six times more coal by 2100 than we were using today. Hmm. Yep, about eight times more than than when the scenarios were first published. It's a world where global emissions triple by the end of the century. And even at the time, it wasn't really the sort of median baseline estimate in the literature. In fact, if you read some of the, the papers uh, in which that first laid out the RCP 8.5 scenario, it was actually roughly the 90th percentile of, of no policy baseline scenarios hmm. available in the literature at the time. And so there's a, a really big gap between RCP 6.0, which was sort of at the low end of the, the baseline range in the literature at the time, and RCP 8.5, which was the highest end, or the, or, mm -hmm. or the high end, mm -hmm. I should say, not the highest uh, mm -hmm. at the time. And these scenarios were, you know, researchers started on them in the late 2000s. They were published uh, in 2011. Um, and the world has changed a lot since then. One of the problems is that because RCP 8.5 was the only sort of no policy baseline scenario mm -hmm. available in the IPCC fifth assessment report, it sort of became the business as usual scenario that a lot mm. of modelers used for climate impact assessments. In fact, there's thousands of papers that literally say in a business as usual scenario, parentheses RCP 8.5 right. and parentheses, you know, this level of sea level rise will happen, this level of coral reef death will happen, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, at the time, you could have made the case that, you know, even though it was the high end of possible scenarios, it wasn't completely out of, you know, the realm of plausibility. But from where we are today, the idea that we'd, you know, have six times more coal use by 2100 is is just not going to happen. And so there's been a bit of a reassessment of where likely scenarios are headed and sort of how we should be using these scenarios uh, in research going forward. You know, I, I think we should still include these sort of scenarios in our modeling as, as worst case scenarios, but we should stop conflating the worst case with the most likely outcome, uh, which is the problem that was pretty common in the literature and sort of the last five years. I'd like to talk for a moment about the broader conversation around climate futures and how sometimes the messaging becomes decoupled from the actual science. What we tend to think of as business as usual is actually changing in part because our business has been changing. But a lot of the reporting on climate models kind of focuses on these high end scenarios, even if those aren't necessarily the most likely. And in the last you know year or so, 
I've really started seeing people throw around this idea that we only have 10 years to turn everything around and prevent catastrophic climate change. So can you talk a little bit about where this idea comes from? Like, why did people latch on to this idea of a 10-year window? And how accurate is that exactly? So the 10 years to save the planet number actually came from a Guardian headline writer. <laughs> it didn't come from the IPCC. Um, it was their interpretation of the IPCC uh, special report on 1.5 degrees. And, you know, it sort of took on a life of its own and, and ran wild. But essentially what the number is based on is that if you want to limit warming to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. And, and bear in mind, we're at 1.2 degrees today. Mm -hmm. So, mm. you know, we're talking about a very, very small uh, level of additional warming in, in terms of, you know, allow how much emissions we can allow. So, you know, incredibly tight. We have to reduce our emissions or cut our emissions roughly in half in the next 10 years and all the way to zero in the next 20 years in a sort of very simple calculus. Now, that calculus is actually not what is really used in most of the scenarios in, in the IPCC 1.5C report. Rather, most of the energy system models that were tasked to create one and a half degree warming scenarios essentially decided that that was impossible. And so what they do instead is have a more gradual decline, um, reaching net zero emissions around 2050, say, so 30 years instead of 20 years, and make up for that by sucking an immense amount of carbon out of the atmosphere uh, later on in the century. You know, to put in perspective, some of these models have, you know, two to three times the land area of India devoted to bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, mm -hmm. sucking carbon out of the atmosphere every year in order to meet these targets. So you're, we're talking about like planetary engineering type things um, that, are, that are a little mind boggling in their scale. But, you know, that's that's the problem with having a, a target where we can only warm by 0.3 C more than where we are today mm -hmm. is you've, you're really stuck with that choice. Mm -hmm. Either you have to get all emissions to zero incredibly quickly you know, in 20 years, which, you know, it doesn't violate the laws of physics, but I really don't see that happening in, in terms of political will or anything else. Or, you know, you overshoot and you have to suck uh, a bunch of carbon out of the atmosphere late in the century. Um, and so that's sort of the brutal math of the one and a half degree target. Now, one and a half degrees is a target for a reason, mm -hmm. though the way it came about was a bit of a sort of tail wags the dog type mm -hmm. thing. You know, in the, in the context of the Paris Agreement, all the discussion, and to be honest, most of the scientific literature at the time was all about limiting warming to well below two degrees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what well below two degrees means is taken to mean essentially is, is the RCP 2.6 scenario, uh, which has about 1.8 C warming by 2100 above pre-industrial and also conveniently has about a 66% chance of avoiding two degrees warming. Mm -hmm. um, because again, you know, there's this uncertainty in climate sensitivity. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where almost all of the scientific literature was in you know, 2015 or so. And then in, in the Paris Agreement, a lot of small island nations got together and said, wait a minute, you know, at two degrees warming, we're mostly underwater. Mm. You know, that's that's right. not acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, and so they pushed for sort of a, a greater ambition. And the way that that ended up getting resolved is the Paris Agreement authors essentially said, OK, we'll, we'll make the target still well below two degrees. And then we'll say with sort of a, a goal of 1.5 degrees. Hmm. But then the scientific community was like, huh, now, now there's this new goal, but we don't have any literature at all on, on 1.5 degrees because mm -hmm. we didn't have any scenarios to run for that. You know, there, there weren't any climate model runs that limited warming to one and a half degrees wow. available. And so there, the sort of UN Framework Convention on Climate Change asked the IPCC 
to put together a special report on one and a half degrees. And it led to this huge amount of, of energy system modeling and sort of simplified climate modeling. Um, there weren't too many actual full earth system models run for one and a half degrees because there wasn't time. And a lot of sort of climate impact studies then using the output of those simple models to try to, to look at exactly what the difference is between one and a half degrees and two degrees. And they published a big report. I think it's two years ago now. And, and then it led to this sort of tenure to save the planet thing. And, you know, there are real differences between one and a half and two degrees warming, you know, particularly for coral reefs. You know, mm-hmm. most coral reefs are probably not going to be able to survive two degrees warming. You know, there's real impacts on sea level rise for Smile Island nations. There's real impacts on things like agricultural yields. That said, you know, a world of well below two degrees is still one where, you know, humanity will by and large manage to adapt to. You know, it's it's not a catastrophic scenario of any stretch of the imagination. If we end up at 1.8 degrees instead of 1.5 degrees, it's just not the best outcome. And so that's one of the reasons I, I sort of take issue with these 10 years to save the planet thing. Not only is it misrepresenting sort of what most of the models that get to 1.5 degrees actually have us doing, which is this sort of overshoot plus negative emissions, but it also is sort of drawing this line of catastrophe after 1.5 degrees in a way that's really not supported by the scientific literature. Hmm. Certainly, there's some specific ecosystems. You know, coral reefs are, are probably the, the biggest example where you you can draw, to an extent, those sort of lines. But for the world as a whole, it's, it's certainly not defensible to say that, like, you know, one and a half degrees is fine and two degrees is catastrophe. You know, you could say that four degrees is catastrophe. You could even argue that three degrees is, is catastrophe, though that's a more challenging argument to be made for human systems, but certainly one that's easy to, easier to make for natural systems. Um, but, mm-hmm. but two degrees, you know, is not where we want to end up in a perfect world, but it's not mm-hmm. the end of the world. Hey everyone, producer Justin Shell here. For the rest of the season, we're featuring other climate change podcasts we think you should check out. On today's episode, Thimali Kodakara, the producer and co-host of the podcast Mothers of Invention, talks about how the show focuses explicitly on feminist solutions to the climate crisis. I'm Thimali Kodikara, and I series produce and co-host a podcast called Mothers of Invention on feminist solutions to the climate crisis. I co-host it with Mary Robinson, who was the first woman president of Ireland, and Maeve Higgins, who is a very funny comedian. And we chat with mostly black, brown and indigenous women and girls from around the world who are fighting from the front lines of the climate crisis. And I wanted to share some data with you all that I found whilst researching our episode three this season on climate migration. It's estimated 200 million people around the world will become climate migrants by 2050. So to understand what that will feel like, we spoke to Ursula Rakova from the Kartra Islands in Melanesia because her people are the first population in the world relocating due to sea level rise. And we also talked to Colette Pichon-Battle in the Louisiana Bayou who watched folks leave en masse after Hurricane Katrina. But the thing is, Ursula is doing unprecedented work bringing her indigenous community to mainland safety. And Colette founded the Gulf Centre for Law and Policy to claim climate justice and ecological equity for her community. 
So we know that climate change is a man-made problem with a feminist solution, because who better to ask what to do than the folks who've been surviving it for generations? And if we support the most marginalised people on the planet, we know we're supporting everybody. You can find Mothers of Invention wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to our conversation with Zeke Hausfather. What I find so frustrating is that when I've tried to push back against this kind of binary thinking, I often hear people say things like, well, you know, maybe we need to scare people a little bit because, you know, we're not decarbonizing fast enough and we need to get people out in the streets, etc. So do you think that that Guardian article has had a net positive or a net negative impact on the climate movement? It's a hard question to answer. You know, I'm not a fan of it because I'm worried it'll come back to bite us in a big way. And we've certainly seen a rise of sort of doomerism in a way that we didn't see five years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, now climate scientists like my friend Michael Mann spend more time on Twitter arguing with the doomists than they spend arguing with the climate skeptics, which is a bit of a change. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. you know, at the same time, it is important to have impetus for action. That said, the framing... You could, it would be so easy to frame a, you know, two degree target in the same way. Like if we really want to limit warming to well below two degrees, the sort of primary Paris Agreement goals, we can't wait 10 more years and do nothing. You know, we Mm. need to start Mm -hmm. reducing emissions now, Mm -hmm. regardless, you know, (laughs) it's not like we can bide our time if we have a slightly more realistic target we're aiming for. And so, you know, the, the need for climate action is not necessarily predicated on this incredibly difficult to achieve target of of limiting warming to only 0.3 C more than where we are at today. I'm Mm -hmm. worried that it sets us up for failure in a few more years when, you know, we've made modest progress, but not transformational progress. And it becomes increasingly clear that the one and a half degree target is, is sort of off the table, barring magical negative emissions late in the century. And so that's my real worry is, is that we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure by, you know, focusing too much on, on what is almost impossible to achieve. Mm. So you highlighted China pledging carbon neutrality by 2060, and other nations are trying to aim for carbon neutrality by 2050. But you hear a lot of doomers say it's too late. So in your opinion, is it too late? It's a good question. You know, you, you certainly can say if we have like three or four or five degrees warming, you know, corn growing in Nebraska is going to be in, in pretty bad spot. Though even then, like it really depends on what happens with agricultural technology. Are we like genetically engineering more heat tolerant variants of corn and mm-hmm. human systems? There's always this sort of race between adaptive capacity and climate impacts to an extent that there isn't necessarily in the natural world. And it's important to, mm-hmm. to distinguish those two. You know, I'd, I'd be much more worried about farmers in Bangladesh than farmers in the Midwest in a higher right. warming world mm-hmm. in terms of our ability to respond. But, but more broadly, you know, a lot of climate discourse gets framed around thresholds. Mm. And climate change is really a matter of degrees, not a matter of thresholds. Mm-hmm. The warmer it gets, the worse the impacts get. And in a nonlinear way, right? You know, mm-hmm. three degrees is a lot worse than two degrees. Four degrees is a lot, lot worse than mm-hmm. three degrees. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we don't really have much evidence from climate models or, or from, you know, studying other systems that there's global scale climate tipping points that could lead to runaway warming that could lead to a massive amount of additional warming beyond what we expect to happen. And there are a lot of processes in the earth system that are nonlinear. You know, coral reefs was an example I gave earlier. Ice sheets is another good one where, you know, once you pass a particular warming level over the long term, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to get ice sheets to recover and you know, you're sort of condemning them to a, a long, slow melt. 
at least in the absence of a, a world of, of large scale negative emissions, but that gets complicated. Um, and <laughs> things like, you know, Arctic permafrost, where at, you know, a high enough warming level, it is slowly going to melt and contribute to more warming going forward. But those are all fairly slow processes. They're not, you know, suddenly we go from having two degrees warming to having four degrees warming between, you know, 2050 and 2080, because we hit mm-hmm. some tipping point, right? To the extent that there are tipping elements in the climate system that affect global temperatures, they're very slow, gradual processes. And they're certainly worrisome. You know, we don't want a world where we're committed to five or 10 meters of sea level rise in the next five or 600 years. Right. And, you know, you could make the argument that two degrees, we, we could end up there. But that's a very different type of argument than like, we're all going to be dead in 10 years, right? Because mm-hmm. the timescales are, are simply just very different. Now, the only real climate tipping point I've seen in the literature that could be this sort of doomsday type thing is still a very tentative one that was published by uh, Tapio Schneider down at Caltech and some other folks last year or two years ago, I think now, uh, where they looked at what would happen to stratocumulus cloud decks, which cover much of the world's oceans in very high warming worlds. And they found that in worlds where you get above about 1300 parts per million CO2, so we're talking like high end RCP 0.5, like four to five degrees warming, suddenly most of the world's stratocumulus cloud decks disappear. Hmm. Uh, And you end up with about Hmm. six degrees additional warming in the course of decades beyond what you've already had. And so, you know, a world where you suddenly go from four to 10 degrees C warming, that would be pretty apocalyptic. But at the same time, they found that that was only really possible at very, very high levels of CO2. And importantly, it could also help explain some of the climate conditions in in paleoclimate periods under very, very high CO2 levels. So it was a very interesting study. But again, it was a very like simple model, single column convective model, not like a global scale thing, because you you can't really do that level of subscale physical parameterization for a a global climate model. But we don't see anything like that at like one and a half degrees or two degrees or even three degrees, though, you know, the the challenge with warming is we have models. They're not perfect. The Earth system is complex. We know it's changed rapidly in the past through all of our paleoclimate research. And so, you know, the further we push the climate system past the bounds of where it's been in the Holocene the last 10,000 years, you know, the greater the chance that sort of there be dragons, right? That the, the, they're mm-hmm. unknown unknowns, to quote the one good thing Donald Rumsfeld ever said. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that that does give us reason to, to be cautious. Um, but at the same time, those are unknown unknowns. We don't have these specific thresholds where we know that that everything, you know, blows up. And, and so, you know, we, we should be cautious. We should really try to limit warming to below two degrees. And, you know, maybe if we, we have really good negative emissions technologies even further down than that. But at the same time, we shouldn't worry that, you know, we're all going to die if we end up muddling through and, and have a, a two and a half degree world by 2100. It's not a world that we'll want to live in. It's a world that has a lot of impacts on human and natural systems, but it's not the apocalypse. And as I, I think Kate Marvel put it, the apocalypse is kind of an unnecessarily high bar to take action, right? You know, almost, almost every other problem we deal with as a species is not literally a human extinction issue, right. with possibly the mm-hmm. exception of nuclear war. Yeah. Uh, and yet we still deal with these problems like poverty, like, you know, malnutrition, you know, in, in a big way. And so I, I think it's better to think of climate change in, in a similar vein than like this, hmm. you know, the world is going to end or everything's going to be fine dichotomy. Are there any other nightmare scenarios that you see people worrying about that are probably not actually going to happen? I'm thinking about um, the Arctic methane bomb story that also came out in The Guardian. And it wasn't even actually about a published study. It was about field work that was still in progress. And it turned out that there was actually a lot of reason to be skeptical about catastrophic warming caused by Arctic Ocean methane. 
can you think of anything else that, you know, maybe you can alleviate people's concerns about in terms of our anxieties about potential apocalyptic futures? So, so that one is a big one that a lot of people talk about. And there is real concern around permafrost, but that's more of a like long-term feedback that affects mm. CO2 more than methane, just because methane is a very short atmospheric lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at some of these higher emission scenarios, we could end up with, you know, another 100 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere from permafrost by 2300, you know, in a world where we sort of keep emitting at our current levels, even outside of these these worst case scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, so permafrost is, is certainly a really important part of the climate system and a really big impact. But it's, at least to the best of our knowledge, not a sudden impact. And there are small-scale sudden impacts in the context of permafrost. You can have, you know, regional sudden methane releases, but they're not big enough to have very large global climate effects. Um, and sort of the the frozen methane on the, the seabed, these sort of methane hydrates or clathrates, they get a lot of attention. Um, you know, there's been a lot of research done on them in recent years, and, and sort of there's two things that come out of that. One is that when they do melt or destabilize through landslides or things like that, a lot of the methane ends up being absorbed by the ocean waters um, yeah. and by biological processes mm-hmm. before it gets out to the atmosphere. And the second is that these sort of methane hydrate deposits, you know, when they do dissipate or melt, they do so very slowly from the top down. Um, and so there's not too many mechanisms apart from like regional landslides or, or sea slides could trigger very, very large volumes to be released. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's certainly something we should keep our eyes on, but there's not much evidence that there's a looming methane bomb that could sort of, you know, lead to a, a, a very notable amount of additional global warming in, in the short term. Another area where there's been sort of a lot of popular media discussion that's, that's varied a bit from the state of the science is around the, the thermohaline circulation or the, the AMO, it's often called like the ocean conveyor belt. But essentially what, what happens is that there's big circulations in the ocean that are driven by changes in salinity of surface water. So as water moves up north through the Atlantic, uh, it evaporates. And as it evaporates, it leaves behind the uh, salt content of the seawater. Uh, mm-hmm. And that means the surface waters get saltier and saltier as more evaporation occurs. And salty water, it turns out, is, is dense. And so this dense, salty surface water starts sinking down into the deep. And that drives a lot of ocean circulation, that process. And so the worry is that as Greenland starts to melt in a big way, it's putting a bunch of fresh water into the North Atlantic. And we already see this you know, showing up in, in many of our observations. And that fresh water reduces the salinity of the surface waters. It counteracts the effect of the evaporation. And so what that means is it can slow down this ocean conveyor belt. Um, and, you know, this was most famously dramatized in the movie The Day After Tomorrow, which had so many scientific mm-hmm. issues, I'm not even going to start but on I it. But I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> it, is, it is a very entertaining movie. Um, so, you know, there's a, a real worry uh, that's been dramatized that this conveyor belt would shut down and it would stop bringing up warm waters that makes, you know, places like New York or the UK or even Iceland you know, much more habitable than similar high latitude regions in other parts of the world that don't have currents like that. What we actually see in our climate models is that, you know, the odds of a sudden shutdown of the thermohaline circulation are very low. It has happened in the past, but mostly because, you know, there was a giant inland lake covering much of the Americas caused by melting ice sheets that suddenly burst into the North Atlantic and poured an immense amount of fresh water in at once and that shut it down. You know, what's happening in Greenland is is really concerning, but it's much more mm-hmm, gradual. Mm-hmm. And so what we expect to see is a s- slowdown of the thermohaline circulation over the course of the century, not a stoppage. And that would cool, all things being equal, 
some of these higher latitude regions. But at the same time, the world is warming. And so scenarios mm -hmm. where you have a very large degree of slowdown, so these very high emission scenarios, are also scenarios where the world is warming a lot. And that warming, it turns out, at least in most models in most regions, is bigger than any cooling you'd get from a slowdown of the thermohaline circulation. And so at best, it's probably just going to counteract or, or lead to slightly less warming than you'd otherwise see in some of these regions, not like plunge the world into an ice age or, or anything crazy like that. Um, so that's another thing that's that's certainly worth watching. And there's a lot of other you know potential regional effects of that on things like precipitation that are and certainly meaningful and, and could impact crop yields and, and things like that. But it's not, you know, a, a global catastrophe that could strike at any minute. So Zeke, throughout this whole discussion, we've been using the words possible and probable and likely. I know when I've talked to my students about climate models, I explicitly distinguish between possible and probable. How much of the concern about apocalyptic futures comes out of our inability as humans to grapple with uncertainty, and how do we as scientists better distinguish between words like possible and probable and likely to help the public gain a clearer understanding of our climate future? That's a good question. And, and you know, we shouldn't necessarily discount low probability, high impact outcomes. Um, in fact, there's a, a great quote by, by Marty Weitzman, or the late Marty Weitzman, who is a, a great climate economist at Harvard, where he said that uh, when it comes to the damages of climate change, the, the sting is in the tail which is a really nerdy phrase because it refers to the tail of probability distributions, but essentially that these low probability, high impact outcomes make up a disproportionate amount of the damages in a lot of climate scenarios. It's not the three degree world, it's the non-trivial chance of the five degree world that, that really should scare us. Um, and so it's important to model those. But as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's also just important to be clear when we're talking about them, what is a worst case outcome and what is a likely outcome. Um, and that applies both to our mission scenarios and, and our scenarios of climate impacts. And I feel like where we've, we've sort of run into trouble at times is because a lot of the climate impact literature unfortunately conflated the one of the worst case emission scenarios with the most likely scenario in, in a world of no climate action. Um, we sort of ended up with a, a literature of climate impacts that also implicitly portrays you know, what are relatively low probability outcomes because they occur at, you know, a five degree warming world uh, with most likely outcomes in, in a world without climate action. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, better treatment of future emission scenarios helps there. Um, but when we're also talking about things like tipping points, you know, then we're also talking about low probability impacts, even at high warming scenarios, it, it becomes even harder to effectively discuss. It's a challenge. I, I don't have an easy answer on that one, but I think that, mm -hmm. you know, more, more clarity both around the scenarios we use and sort of how we talk about low probability, high impact events is, is important. We've spent a lot of time focusing this discussion on what could go wrong and the likelihood of various apocalyptic futures. So as we focused on the negative, what are we maybe missing in terms of what's going right? So with all the focus on, you know, the possibility of methane bombs in the Arctic or the extinction crisis, what are the reasons that you are finding for hope right now? And I know that hope can be a loaded term, but I think that a lot of our listeners would appreciate some positive news because that can actually be really empowering for people. So I think there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful um, and much more in the last few years than even a few years ago. I think some people are worried about talking about the hopeful things too much because they think it'll distract us from the importance of climate action. I feel like that's a problematic framing. You know, the, the need for limiting warming to below two degrees is not predicated on a, a counterfactual scenario of five degrees warming, right? If we're on track for three degrees instead of five degrees, it, it doesn't lessen the need to get to two. There's a reason we, we chose that as our target, right? But what makes me hopeful 
is a couple things. One big one is the degree of technological progress we've seen and the degree of success we've seen in making clean energy cheap. You know, the prices of batteries, of solar panels, of wind turbines, of both onshore and offshore, have fallen much faster than anyone even predicted five, ten years ago. In fact, as a great example, all of these uh, integrated assessment models that are used to, to create future emission scenarios that I was talking about earlier, that are going to be used in the next IPCC report, they were created around you know, 2014, 2015, 2016. And so their price in those models for solar panels in the year 2050 is higher than the price of solar panels in most countries today. Um, we've seen such you know, degree of technological advancement that it's really gone outside of, of what our models predicted. And that's why, you know, we're now on track for, you know, a current policy scenario that's very much in the low end of, of the sort of baseline scenarios in those models. You know, the fact that China is willing to commit to a 2060 goal is almost entirely, in, in my view, because we see a pathway from where we are today to get there that is not extremely costly because we have a lot of these alternatives available. We don't have all of them. You know, there's certainly some sectors of the economy like industrial heat or aviation or agriculture that are a lot harder to decarbonize. Mm -hmm. and we need a lot more innovation there. Um, and even in, you know, in energy, like in electricity, there's, you can't just power a country by wind and solar easily. There's, there's other parts of the system that need improvement, but you know, we can get a long way with the technologies we have today. And the fact that they've gotten so cheap gives me a lot of hope. And that's really what's sort of helped bend down some of these future emission curves. Um, the other thing that gives me hope is that there just seems to be a lot more political will to to make meaningful commitments on climate change now than there was a decade ago. You know, the Paris Agreement was a great start, but particularly this year with, you know, China, Japan, Korea, the EU, you know, all of these big emitters committing to reduce their emissions to zero by mid-century, you know, we're, we're sort of at a, a, a tipping point, so to speak, in <laughs> climate action. And, you know, if we see the U.S. joining that effort under a new Biden administration, um, we'll have more than half of global emissions, uh, well, more than half of global emissions today committed to, to getting to net zero by mid-century. And, and that would really be game changing for the climate. And so, you know, we certainly have a long way to go still. And, and you know, words on paper are not worth that much until they're turned into actual policies on the ground. But, you know, things are moving in the right direction in many ways, even if they're not quite as fast as, as we'd want. And we just need to keep pushing in that direction. And so, you know, we, we've, we've taken a lot of the worst case outcomes off the table, even if we're not quite on track for the best case outcomes yet today. For this episode's data story, we turn to Dr. Caitlin McDonough McKenzie, who talked about not only the kinds of data she works with in studying climate change, but also the effects it has on the world her daughters will grow up in. My name is Caitlin McDonough McKenzie, and I'm a visiting assistant professor in environmental studies at Colby College. I study the timing of leaf out and flowering. As temperatures warm, leaf out and flowering advance earlier and earlier in the spring. These are some of the most visible signs of the ecological impacts of climate change. To get really long-term records, my research depends on journals and diaries of old naturalists like Henry David Thoreau. Of course, when Thoreau recorded flowering dates, he didn't see it as a fingerprint of climate change, but his observations allow us to calculate how much climate change has shifted the environments that we think we know. Humans have been marking time by seasonal events for a long, long time think Stonehenge and the solstice. And my research often feels like an extension of this cultural history, an effort to understand our place and time in the universe. The difference is my observations reflect my own species actions. 
the work that I do now, my research, teaching, and advocacy will determine when my daughters see flowers bloom and what their seasons will look like in the future. We'd love to hear your data story. You can leave us a voicemail by calling 586-930-5286 or record yourself and email it to us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. Over the past few weeks, as the first batches of COVID vaccinations have been administered in the U.S., there is almost a nightly report on the news where a frontline healthcare worker talks about how getting the vaccination provides them with a sense of hope. This got me thinking about the parallels with climate change and the nature of hope when facing down a seemingly impossible challenge. It also got me thinking about the idea that in the case of COVID-19, science can deliver hope right into the bloodstream. In my conservation biology class, I often find myself having to give my students a similar shot of hope, if you will. In the class, we examine a lot of the ways in which human activities are impacting the planet, from biodiversity loss, to deforestation, to overfishing, to the negative impacts of climate change on marginalized communities. After having taught this class a number of times, the students follow a predictable arc during the semester, and at some point, they fall into a bit of an emotional valley that is often verbalized to me in a rather matter-of-fact sort of way. Humans suck. As the students learn about these global changes, they feel like there are no ways to fix these big problems. Someone always gets the short end of the stick, and that these problems are just too big to tackle. They feel hopeless. To help them climb out of this emotional valley, I bring in local environmental leaders from the Lincoln area who are making a difference in their communities. For example, my friend Tim Rinney started an urban agriculture project called the Hawley Hamlet. Tim and his dedicated neighbors have converted their lawns to garden space, about 65 yards in total, and they grow thousands of pounds of fruits and vegetables to feed their families and friends. I also have my students specifically collect news articles that give them hope. They collect all sorts of articles ranging from stories about waste reduction by the Philadelphia Eagles, to new technologies that help capture CO2 from the atmosphere, to financial firms accounting for climate change in their investments. More importantly, they also have to explain why the articles give them hope. I even had a student remark that seeing the collection build up through the semester gave him an even greater sense of hope. Although my students have been able to find these moments of hope, they have had to wade through a seemingly endless stream of awful news stories that make pretty dark predictions about the world in the near future. It's tough to find that hope. That's not just true for my students, it's true for me too. It seems that every few months, there's an article that comes across my Twitter or Facebook feed that is predicting that we only have, quote unquote, seven years left. These pieces put me in the same emotional valley that I work to help my students climb out of. However, as I was writing this for the podcast, I realized how much my own sense of hopelessness is shaped by the broad narrative in the media about climate change. How the American media narrative focuses a lot on climate anxiety, and much less so on action to fight climate change. But I also realized that being a part of this podcast is fundamentally an act of hope. It's an attempt to push back against these stories of despair. To be honest, if I truly thought it was hopeless, I don't know if I'd spend my time making a podcast. I'd probably be checking things off a list of places to see and things to eat. 
sharing the science of climate change, sharing stories and conversations from those who are impacted by climate change, and talking about how people are using data about climate change to improve things on the ground. These are all fundamentally a manifestation of my own hope that we can create a more equitable climate future for all of us. One piece that I came across in January of this year that gave me hope with each line that I read was an article written by our second guest, Diego Arguedas Ortiz, a climate communicator who has written for such news outlets like the BBC and Univision. The piece, Is It Wrong to be Hopeful About Climate Change, was published as part of a BBC series on climate emotions. Diego's piece was an insightful exploration of how collective, action-driven, responsive hope is a deeply social phenomenon, and that the uncertainty about our future can in fact be seen as an opportunity for hope. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Diego. Um, one of the reasons that I know Ramesh and I were so excited to talk to you is that you know, a lot of the recent media coverage on climate change tends to focus either on, you know, really negative news or catastrophic events or doom and gloom predictions of the future. And yet a lot of your recent work has focused around the idea of hope. So how did that come to be? Thanks, uh, Jacqueline, and very much for the invitation. I think, so it was more of a coincidence. I got an invitation from a BBC editor to write about climate and emotion series they were running, and she offered several topics to me. And I was a bit reluctant to engage in hope because I was very unhopeful, I guess, perhaps myself. I was very dubious about the case for hope on, on climate change. Even if I wanted to, even if I felt like it was necessary, I, I didn't see it. Hmm. But eventually she convinced me and uh, I, I, yeah, I just started reading and asking people. And it's been something that fascinated me ever since. It's just such a deep topic to go through because it's so relevant. That piece that you wrote in early 2020 for the BBC remains my favorite piece about climate change this year. And that's because it grapples so well with a lot of these really messy and, and personal responses to the climate crisis. And one of the things that really struck me by that piece is that the word hope or just the idea of hope seems to mean a lot of different things to different people. Now, I wonder... Do you think that that might be holding us back from effectively harnessing the idea of hope to promote action on climate change? Or do you think that it's a good thing that this one word can have so many different definitions for so many people? That's an interesting question. I think I think it's definitely tricky that hope means different things for different people. And it means, for instance, for some people, just things will be fine, uh, which I heard other people just describe it as like fake optimism or silly optimism. Whereas for others, it just means action. And I think it would be really useful to just move away from the definition of hope based only on things will be fine, like this messiah concept we have on Western societies, like things will just be fine because Elon Musk is going to come and save us. And then just engage more on what I feel the more action-based definition of hope. Yeah, and then, and then hope as something you cannot achieve unless you're acting yourself. At some point, Catherine Hayhoe was being asked so often what gives you hope in, in her talks that then she started asking what brings hope to people. And there was this big chunk of people just saying, you're activists and generally like people acting on climate change. But the issue is if you just base your hope on someone else and it's something that many people in, in have made the case about, mm -hmm. then it is a bit unfair 
it's a bit unfair because there's someone else working on, on this action and like mm-hmm. having this emotional burden of we're basically outsourcing hope to, to someone else. Right. So we're just waiting on the good news to give us hope or the science or the technology. It's it's frail. Whereas if you build in if you build hope on your values and the things you know you can do, and especially on this collective aggregation of individual hopes into a collective one, then I think it's a better place to start with. I like that a lot for two reasons. First, I like the idea of turning that question around and instead asking, what do we need to do to give our communities hope so that they feel like their actions can make a difference? And I also really like that the kind of hope that you're talking about involves a sense of a moral duty to act on climate. We can't just keep assuming that someone else is going to fix this for us. We have to show up, whether that's through activism or our own individual actions or just getting out there and talking about climate change in our community. I think this is why many people are, I think, rightfully skeptical about hope, because hope then get thrown around as, in a way, a way to make people more passive. If you think things are just going to be fine, then there's no need to engage on it. So in your BBC piece, you also talked about hope being a deeply social phenomenon and that responsive hope specifically is key to tackling big problems like climate change. Do you still think that this type of hope is key? Yeah, and I came to this idea through the work of Victoria McGree, and she argues that you need like this social scaffolding to just work on anything in your life. And mm-hmm. I think she argues you can have like this stubborn hope that you, yes, you with your actions and you with your power can change the day. And then that's, I think she calls something like stubborn hope or something. And then something she calls like more like silly, silly hope or silly optimism, which is this idea, like things will be fine. And then somewhere in the middle, there's this like sweet spot in between, yes, you need to do your stuff, but then it's impossible to do it alone. Right. There's literally no person in the world that can solve this. So if you don't build collectively, if you don't make the responsive hope, as she calls it, then it will be really tricky. And then at some point you'll, you'll feel, I am not enough. So what about the folks that have given up hope, the so-called doomers? These are the people who don't believe that there's anything that we can do And not only have they lost hope, but they seem to feel the need to kind of convince other people that there's nothing that we can do. Have you encountered this kind of emotional response in your work? And if so, what have those conversations been like? Yeah, I think that doom and gloom is is very real. I know a relatively high-ranking United Organization official who was arguing against like action on, on flights, for instance, because he felt it was a bit of a lost cause. And I think it's a, it's a way of self-denial. At the point when you, you just feel overwhelmed by the scale of it. Mm. So I think it's just a sort of emotional response akin to denial. And I think the way to deal with this, I think it's similar to the way you deal with other sorts of like emotional responses, such as denial, which is in an emotional way as well. There is very little evidence that when, when you are in a, this stage of denial, more facts and data will help. You just need to find another emotional door to this person's mind so you can talk a similar language because basically the mind is, is, is closing in to external influence and saying, this is all threatening to me. Mm. And because it is, I will just not engage and there's no, there's no way forward. I, I, so the way I see it and the way I've been trying to focus my work recently is Science and data is the necessary foundation of everything. And I think we all agree on that. 
but it's never enough. And it's mm. never enough because you need, because fear is such a powerful emotional response that you need equally powerful emotional uh, actions or tools to respond to it. So Diego, do you find yourself in these conversations trying to convince doomers that there is hope around fighting climate change? I think I do because I'm also stubborn. <laughs> so I think I, I find myself ineffectively arguing the case, I guess, for this is not lost. Hmm. But I think I'm trying because that, that is just like my, um, my own emotional response is like, this is something that also feels a bit threatening to me as a kind of communicator that someone, someone is not engaging in this. So I guess my initial response is usually, no, this, you, you know, especially for people, people who have a background in climate change, you know, this is not entirely lost cause and, you know, can get worse worse. And you just, I go, I gave him like the full verses. But but I think once my head cools down a bit, I try to see a different way. And we're trying to do something in Costa Rica, which is called climate conversations. And it's a methodology that we're trying to develop to make it easier to talk about climate change. And it's a, it's a model that's starting in the UK. And, and basically, you you try to bring people together and then you start by talking about what emotions you get from climate change and how it makes you feel. And ideally, bring a group group together and talk about it. We're trying more to frame the conversation on this way, hoping that it will bring a more positive effect moving forward. Diego, you're based out of Costa Rica and you've published internationally. How do you think the American conversation about climate change is different from other parts of the world where you've engaged in these climate conversations? I think the American conversation is, is entirely distorted, maybe similar to Australia and Norway, perhaps, where the presence of fossil fuel interests has been so massive throughout the years and so pervasive as well that it's left a mark that is really hard now to erase. I mean, the fact that mm -hmm. still have your Congress will not support climate action just because it's very different to most, most of the countries. And, and also, even more than that, the fact that polls still show a decent chunk of the population disbelieving climate science that is very different. So the conversation in the US is, is very different as the one you should have elsewhere. A big issue with this is the cultural dominance the US has over the world means that your climate conversation, which is distorted, distorts the rest of the world in a way, mm -hmm. because it, it makes it feel that the rest of the world is as divided as, as the US, which I think is not the case. I think most of the world and polls show it overwhelmingly support climate action. Mm -hmm. But because most of the global media is based in the US and most of the global scholars come from the US and it seems less hopeful. Wow. Do you think the media should be reporting on climate change differently? And if so, how should they do it? This is weird because I'm going to, I guess, point a finger at myself as, as well. But I think one of the biggest issues we have as climate reporters is that we tell like a fragmented story in the sense that we report individually or independently on the impacts and the solutions or things you can do. So you have a whole school of like solutions focused journalism, which is doing really cool stuff on what are people doing nowadays to change and make the world better. And you have a very interesting sort of like wave of journalism exploring the implications of drought in Southeast Asia and in cyclones and hurricanes in the Caribbean. But then I think there's not enough journalism on climate change that connects what we are seeing right now, what people can do. And I think that is in part due to the fact that it is really not clear what, what is the best course to do as a person and as a community. I mean, 
there's such a massive problem that it's hard to point in the right direction and lead the way if you want. And I think journalism in this way is just a reflection of society. Society doesn't really know what the best course of action is. Yes, we know we need to get to the economic economy as soon as possible and make it resilient and just go from fossil fuels. But the where to start, it's quite tricky. And especially if you have countries where you have interests that will be impacted by this. So let me give you the case of Costa Rica, where we have a fairly clean and renewable electricity grid, around 98% has been for the past 10 years or so. But then the transport sector is so, it's so tricky to make changes that would actually decarbonize it and move it towards hopefully non-motorized, but then ideally clean engine system hmm. that people don't really know where to start. So if you're a reporter and you're covering the impact of climate change in Costa Rica, and then you're covering, say, the impact of drought in the Pacific, or if you're covering the impact of how climate change is making people in the North and South Central America countries migrate to the U.S. or elsewhere, it, it, if, you, if you finish a story, which could be a fantastic story on the impact of climate change in Guatemala or Costa Rica or elsewhere, and you read through it, it's very easy to feel gloomy. And that is there, there is just the bad part of, 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 of the story. And I am definitely arguing for rosy journalism. I hate rosy journalism. And I think it's bad, that's generally bad journalism. But they, they, we need to find a balance as journalism and also a society of how do we write in a way that, or do journalism in a way that give people more agency over what they are reading and watching and listening to. number of articles in recent years that focus on climate grief or anxiety, but I have heard some people make the argument that this kind of response is really just affluent white people in the global north that are waking up to a reality that, you know, marginalized communities have known for decades. Do you feel like this is a fair criticism? And I'd lo also love to hear more about what the climate conversation is like in other parts of the world. I've heard arguments, and I think there's definitely something there. It's really tricky to discuss, like this, this differentiate um, impacts. And I think the caveat here is, is I'm also, I guess, somehow part of this well-educated elite in Costa Rica that speaks English and studied abroad. It, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether anxiety or, or, yeah, gloom is what you you would. You would get from a farmer that didn't get crops or for a couple of years. Um, and I think I, I definitely believe that people in the front lines have been getting this for many years in a bigger and broader sense than people living in in the big cities of the world or or in, in San Jose, the capital where I live. Hmm. I have never experienced a drought affecting my crops. I have never seen my family's house get flooded. In a way, like this climate anxiety is, is a bit of a luxury, is, is this sense of like what could happen. Now, that doesn't mean it's not real. These mm -hmm. are valid concerns for, for lots of people. But the question is whether these concerns are rightly placed in the global agenda of emotions hmm. is warranted. And I think we go again to the cultural dominance of 
English-speaking media around the world. The fact that if if I write if I write same piece on hope in Spanish, it will not get one tenth of the pickup on that I did because I wrote it in English. And the culture and emotional landscape of this English-speaking countries and the English-speaking elites around the world also influence the conversation you have on climate change. I don't know if you have ever read a peer-reviewed paper in Spanish. Um, I know I have read only a couple. I mean, recently, usually I just go to yeah. English. Um, so that's one. And then the other also in media. The biggest media in the world in Spanish might be El País from Spain. or And you don't, you don't get that much from El País in non-Spanish-speaking countries. Right. And the same goes also about these conversations. I mean, there's, there's a handful of outlets trying to cover effectively climate change in Spanish. But then... If you if you go in that, that's already a, a big I mean a niche it's a small niche, mm. and if you go into a climate emotions niche in Spanish speaking media and cl- on climate change, then it's like a peep one person writing every six months on it. So it becomes harder to talk about this because then also the incentives as a specialist I mean as a reporter on climate change like me, you have more incentives to write in English mm. than to write in Spanish, I guess. I'm curious to know, as a journalist, how closely do you follow the data and the projections around climate change? And if you do, is the science a source of hope or despair for you? Or is it somewhere in between? I think I think, I think a fair bit. And I definitely need like a translator sort of person that would get the models and explain to me what they what they mean. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean I'm not well versed enough in to just break down the models. But I think what you get from the models from, from the science is the general trajectory of possibilities. Hmm. The models gives you like the politics of the probable. And then with your work, and especially with this work on emotions, you go to the politics of the possible. So just, yeah, to just give an example, I was working in, uh, in a newsroom the day the 1.5 report came out, which was a bit more than two years ago, was October 2018, I think. Mm-hmm. And I recall clearly the flurry of headlines and tweets and everyone talking about the report. And I, I just gave like a quick look at the story for policymakers. And that report, I think that was the last day or like the most recent day that I felt like deep paralyzing fear. It was very breathtaking, that, that report. And that day, especially the global coverage you got because it, it made it feel so real. There are some moments, and I, I think you guys have the same reaction where you just put up your emotional barriers and then you try to filter out some of the science and the self-defense mechanism. Because if you just keep reading every single paper comes out about projections and models, you will, I mean, I think it will just beat you down. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's a mix of, there's a mix of both. It's, it's a mix, it's, it, it guides you in my, the general trajectory of what I think is happening. And then I, I acknowledge them as, as this, yeah. Impossibly, impossible, impossible to deny reality of this is what's happening. This is what's likely to happen. But then there's also a, okay, don't engage that much in something that you don't have con- control over right now. Try to move your energy somewhere else. One of the recurring themes that's come up in our conversations this season is uncertainty and how we don't exactly know what the future will look like, but we can say that some futures are more or less likely. How do you balance conveying the urgency of climate change with the uncertainty of all the different potential outcomes? I'm curious about this, especially because uncertainty tends to evoke really different emotions in people from anxiety to hope. 
So how do you deal with that kind of complexity in your teaching and writing? I think communicative uncertainty is possibly the, the most difficult of communicate, communication jobs, I guess, because it's, yeah, the, just, just communicating risk and risk probabilities and how this might impact any one of us is just, I, I, I think I don't have a clear response for this because I don't even I don't even know how I deal with it myself. I think I, the, the the way I try to deal with this is is just by this this like difference I described, which is the probable and the possible. So we know what's probable, and I guess that is very clear, sadly. But there, even the probable like leaves many open possibilities of things that are less likely, but can go forward. And I think a way. A way, I've found, a way I've seen recently to explore it is by scenario making on, it's, it's not necessarily journalism, it's more like facilitation. And so it's just by bringing people on board on a group, on a workshop and, and explore what unlikely scenarios can happen. And, and then, you know, in that way, if you can make policies or plans that would fit most scenarios, even the good, the bad, likely or unlikely, then... I think it's a decent enough way to to manage at least uncertainty. Hmm. The, the trick is how do you transform that into a journalism piece, <laughs> which once again right. goes back to the one of the issues of journalism is we cannot convey the complexity that you would like to in a novel, for instance, or in a report in one or two or three pieces, even in a special. One way to do it will be to focus. I mean. I guess what goes to the core of what, what I described with the, the novels is to go to go to stories. If, if you're reading, for instance, um, if you read The Parallel of the Sower mm. by Tabby Butler or a a New York 21 and 40, they would convey uncertainty in ways very different. I mean, there are very unlikely worlds on a very likely tra trajectories. So maybe stories are the way to show what could happen or what can happen in, in the future. Something journalism needs to change as well is how it focuses on, on local stories. And it's also an issue right now because, yes, you see subscriptions on New York Times and Washington Post and like big media outlets growing, but there's a big issue with local outlets everywhere in the world. The issue is those are with the outlets that cover the big stories on climate change or, or the important stories on climate change, the stories that impact people, that people you know, the communities you feel. One of the things I would love to change in the future is generally, how do we make local journalism more interested and engaged on climate change and how to make climate change and climate change journalism focus more on local topics. Do you think a focus on local climate change journalism would lead to stories being told in a more authentic way because they're at a scale that is more tangible to the viewer or listener? Possibly. And I think this is why you've seen the rise of newsletters because you cater to a more specific audience and locally could also be a, like locally in your, in your social group. I mean, but then also this locally on, on, a, on a specific topic, focusing on something very specific that a specific audience wants. And mm. if you go, if you try something similar with local stories then people will feel themselves seen and part of the solution. One of the biggest issues we have with climate solutions is that the people we usually represent solving climate change are people that usually don't look like the majority of us. Mm -hmm. They usually look like scientists, sorry guys, um, <laughs> diplomats, engineers, 
And the vast majority of people who are not any of this, they live, they are left wondering, where am I in the equation? Yeah. Right. And if you have more local stories and you focus more on local people, then maybe you have other people that you definitely need. You need, you need like new carpenters, you need like new bus drivers, you need new teachers being part of the solution. Right. Along with, of course, the diplomats and the scientists and the engineers. It's just opening up a bit more the scope of who is solving climate change and who is, who is responding to climate change. I really appreciate your perspective here because I've actually never really quite thought about how the American model of climate reporting has focused so much on the topic of belief or disbelief in climate change. But there's this real hunger for stories about how we can make change within our communities. And I, I think that's such a different way of talking about the climate crisis. And it's ultimately so much more empowering. And you're right, we just don't see those kinds of stories out there. That like action-based conversations is precisely how I see and many other people see hope. Hmm. As Greta said a couple of years ago, it's something you have to earn. There's this really beautiful line by the, in this book, Hope in the Dark, by um, Rebecca Solnit. Mm-hmm. Says something like, hope is not a lottery ticket you sit on the couch and hold. It's uh, acts to break down doors in emergency. And if, if you make a conversation fit for action, then what you get in the end is hope. Warm Regards is produced by Justin Schell. Joe Stormer creates our transcripts, and Catherine Pinehart is our social media maven. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find a transcript of this episode, listen to previous episodes, and find links to subscribe via the podcast platform of your choice on our website, warmregardspodcast.com. Also, something that really helps more people learn about our show is if you could leave a quick review or rating, especially on Apple Podcasts. You can reach us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. This season of Warm Regards is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. Their donations help pay our great team members, Justin, Joe, and Catherine, for all their hard work. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash warmregards. There's also a link to the page in our show notes and website. From all of us at Warm Regards, thanks for letting us into your head. Thank you.